This Sunday is one of the rare Sundays that happen to coincide with Independence Day, the day of this country's birth. It's tempting to start waxing eloquent like David McCullough might, or any number of contemporary American historians about that fateful July 4th in 1776 when a group of esteemed men representing 13 colonies gathered in the sultry setting of a Philadelphia summer, threw all caution to the winds, and signed the Declaration of Independence. They were either all dead, foolish rebels or timeless, immortal heroes in their own right. They didn't know at the time for sure. We like to remember them for the wide variety of character, for their astute vision shared, for instance, the brilliance of Jefferson or the genius of Franklin or the passionate rhetoric of Adams. We project onto them our very best hopes and dreams, though few, if any of them, had much of a detailed notion about what they were starting, whether or not they would be able to finish what they had begun. Some of them were savvy enough to recognize the British Army and Navy, one of the greatest military forces the world had known to that time. They were savvy enough to recognize it was likely to come crashing down on their heads. In some ways, it had already started doing so. They talked of great things like individual liberty and the pursuit of happiness, while some of them, unreflectively in practical ways at least, owned slaves. And no women were there to swear at the king and sign under John Hancock's large letters that were maybe a little bit like St. Paul's. Some of our contemporaries imagine them as Christian men in whatever flavor is most desirable. But these rebels actually represented not only our Church of England progenitors, but a ragtag, diverse cluster of faiths that had made America their sojourn from hostile conditions in Europe. Pragmatic Congregationalists, Presbyterians, a couple of Unitarians. There was even a Catholic from Maryland. And some were not as thoroughgoing Christian as we'd like to think they were. Many of them were influenced and led to varying degrees by deism, that skeptical reason of the Enlightenment. Remember that Jefferson chopped up his own version of the Gospels to suit his intellectual rigor. Franklin, born and baptized a Congregationalist, occasionally attended church as an Anglican while living in Quaker country, good American that he was, and he would probably rather fly kites in lightning storms than pray for a miracle. The Declaration itself, as hallowed as it is amongst our national treasures, was a political document, a contentious late draft born of a messy democratic process amongst learned men who furiously argued philosophically and politically. We might claim this week as the reputation of one of the officially declared saints of the Episcopal Church, the late Thurgood Marshall, was crudely raked over the coals in a Senate judicial nomination hearing, we might claim that for this reason we live in the worst of partisan times. But partisanship was not just nascent, but alive and kicking in the latter 18th century process that broke our ties with Britain. It was also at work in the founding of our church by some of the same people who several years later were helping draft the United States Constitution, 
Like any birth, the birth of our country was messy, was painful, was far from perfect, and it didn't get any cleaner as time wore on, no matter how much we look through the biased lenses of historians or the rhetoric of our politicians, right or left, at the past two and a half centuries. We know our own imperfections as a country all too well, from clinging to the institution of slavery, to struggling over women's suffrage and civil rights, to carpetbaggers, robber barons, and Jim Crow, to the Trail of Tears, to the destruction of peoples and lands whose history and life we will never fully recover. But on the other hand, we have as well our great presidents and our civil rights leaders, our courageous stand against tyranny on two fronts simultaneously in the last century. We have our expanding liberties and our insistence on an impartial system of laws and balances. We know our great scientific achievements, miracles in their own right that would probably have awestruck even the 70 disciples returning from their miraculous adventures in today's gospel. We've taken on agricultural innovations to feed millions at home and to share it, to feed billions abroad. We've made medical advances unprecedented in human history, and we harbor a feisty economic and political inventiveness that remain the envy of the rest of the world. Our citizens invented the cotton gin, the light bulb, and the airplane. We also invented the atomic weapon. We are rude and daring as a people. We've landed on the moon and told dictators to take a hike. We've cut exploration for pork and subsidized tyranny abroad. We are strong in our diversity and sometimes ignorant in our parochialism. We are simple in our patriotism and complicated in our politics. We are human, fallible, and mortal. And yet we stand on the shoulders of ideas and sacrifices that outlive us all. For all our foibles, freedom marches on. How easily we forget what makes that possible. And so we ask God, as we just did in our hymn, to bless our country. We ask God to bless America, both in our secular speech and in houses of worship like this one this morning, still enjoying the freedom of our faith, of our speech, of our heritage that rests very closely to the heart of who we are as a country, as a people as our founders intended. But what do we mean by God bless America? Is it just a patriotic soundbite or is it something more? This is where the history takes a back seat and the sermon begins for me this morning and where we come face to face with our ancient scriptural texts written in anything but a democratic milieu. They have something profound to tell us about why we invoke a divine blessing on our country this day. And it may not be for the reasons we think. At times, we in this country can be like Naaman. Naaman, a great warrior, towering and strong, we imagine. Naaman, who knew his own victories and his prowess well. He was the pride of the king of Aram. And even the king of Israel feared this great warrior's presence and what it might mean for his uneasy peace with the more powerful Arameans. 
Naaman commanded respect and probably fear just about everywhere he went. Only thing was, Naaman harbored a weakness, a dirty little secret. He had leprosy. While we don't know exactly what this meant in today's medical terms, we know it was some kind of dreaded skin disease. In the ancient world, it would have been a sign of impurity, a lack of wholeness, a sign of weakness, all deadly to a great warrior's pride, if not his standing and his reputation. Naaman probably kept it quiet. Just like we in our patriotic pride sometimes keep quiet our own weaknesses and impurities, our own messy history, and our imperfect realities as a people. So Naaman finally decided to do something about his problem, and he gets permission from his king to go seek a man of God to heal him. Only thing is, Naaman thinks like we often do in American society that given the means, we can buy what we want. So he packs the nicest clothes and a great deal of money and plans to buy Elisha's favor with it and in turn purchase God's blessing. Do we say God bless America because we think we deserve it or have earned it? Sometimes it seems like we do. The ironic twist on this is that if that is the case, then we are no better than our ancient ancestors who believed enough blood sacrificed or enough gold offered to the gods would curry divine favor. The thing is, God does not operate this way. God cannot be bought. So Naaman is shocked by the cool reception he gets when he arrives at Elisha's door. The great prophet, who has inherited a double share of Elijah's spirit, doesn't even grant the legendary warrior an audience. Doesn't even come out to say hi. He sends a servant to meet him instead. Adding insult to injury, he tells Naaman to go bathe in the Jordan. It's so far beneath Naaman's dignity to dip himself in that trickle of a stream that he nearly leaves in disgust. Leprosy he can deal with, but not the disdain of prophets. Naaman's challenge is our challenge as Americans. When we say, God bless America, we too easily forget that we say this not because we fully deserve God's blessing, nor because we can pay for it, nor because we've earned it, like Solomon Smith Barney doing it the old-fashioned way. You remember those commercials? We invoke God's blessing because we need it. Just as Naaman needs God, just as the villages and the people of Israel and beyond needed Jesus and his followers and the healing and hope they brought, just as the land needs cultivating and rain and the gulf needs cleaning, our children need stable households, the homeless need shelter, the hungry need food, the unemployed need work, And we need government that serves the people. Just as we need hope and healing, we need our communities and safety, and yes, indeed, we need our freedom, just as our founders did. We need it as badly as the air we breathe. We need it enough to boldly proclaim our right to it, even against considerable odds and in the face of terrible danger. 
We need it. We dare not take it for granted. So we ask God for it. We ask God to bless us. We need those freedoms shepherded and taught for the next generation. For all their foibles, we need to remember the people who gave up so much, some gave up everything, that we might have the liberty we continue to try to live into, that we continue to try to honor. We need the grace of God to get all of that home for us. We are reminded of that this day as we share in a communion born of free self-offering and sacrifice. Self-offering and sacrifice that has inspired so many before us to lay down their lives so that we might be free. As we celebrate a Savior who knew that the gospel, like any great dream of a free people, required empowerment of others so much more than hoarding power to oneself. God bless us. For our needs are great this Independence Day. So are the needs of our continuing service and healing for the wider world. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at oursaviourmv.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.